It's over 9,000! Welcome, Super Elite Warriors, to Final Forum, a podcast for the discussion of all things Dragon Ball. I am your host, Jelly, an elite recruiting member of the Frieza Force, on a mission to find the best warriors from across the galaxy to join the greatest army of all time. And I am joined, as always, by my new recruit co-host. This is Bikini. No, the this time? I call myself the Bikini, and you mock me. I don't call myself the Bikini, and you mock me. What's your deal? You can't blame me for being curious. We've been together for something like two years, and I know very little about you. Apparently, I don't even know your name. That's because every time I try to tell you anything, you interrupt. That cannot be true. Go back and check the transcripts. You constantly interrupt me. Oh, really? Well, Mr. Finally wants to talk about himself for the first time ever, and has never been interested in ever explaining anything about himself before in any way, and I will definitely not be checking the scranships because I just know everything. We got some time. Tell me why you're called Bikini, or The Bikini, or whatever. Seriously? You're not going to interrupt? I will seriously not interrupt. Wow. Okay was not prepared for this. Ooh. Okay. So, I'm called The Bikini because... Because... Honestly, I was just waiting for you to interrupt me again. I'm starting to think you don't even know why you're called The Bikini. I absolutely do. Remember when I spoke of my roots? And when I invoked my name when I, did, when I was doing the Bloodline Annihilation Fist? Who could forget? Right. So... How could I do those things unless I knew what I was doing? I'm honestly not sure, but here we are. What's that supposed to mean? Well, nothing really, but... But what? Well, you've wasted all your intro time wondering if I was going to interrupt you or not, and now there's no more time, and it's time to just jump into this week's topic. And this week, we are covering episodes 87 through 90. That's right, another four episodes. Of the Dragon Ball manga. Again, we're still in the 22nd Tenkaichi Budokai. These would be considered, I think, like the quarterfinals, right? These are, for the most part. Okay. So, we start our quarterfinals with episode 87, Yamcha vs. Tien. With this one, we open with a a quick quick recap of the prelims to start. Uh, There's a scene in the green room... I say green room. It's not really a green room, but that's what I think of when it's like people milling about (laughs) before they go on stage. Uh, Where our fighters trade barbs uh, before the matches start. Tien still having trouble making friends. Meanwhile, Poir and Oolong are looking for Master Roshi, which prompts Oolong to look for him in the bathroom. Guess all those poop jokes had a payoff after all. Where he's accosted by a woman. What? Did Dragon Ball go woke? Oh wait, no. Oolong is just stupid and wandered into the women's restroom instead of the men's. Of course, nobody believes his mistake. As being innocent, however, so, you know, he also gets chided by his friends. Crane Hermit shows up again to harass the girls and smack talk Roshi, who isn't even there to defend himself. Back in the green room, we are reunited with our old friend, Mr. Announcer. We also learn that Crane students aren't above cheating. It seems that Chaozu has some special abilities to sort of cherry-pick matches for the tournament by, uh, like, manipulating air movement to sort of, like, force certain numbers into people's hands as they're drawing their lots. The scheme isn't discovered, so we end up with the following matches. Tien versus Yamcha. Ooh, didn't see that coming. 
Jackie Chun versus Manwolf, uh, Krillin versus Chaozu, and Goku versus Panputo. And then there's a joke where Crane Hermit asks for an arena-wide notification for Master Roshi that is super disrespectful, but probably not 100% undeserved. This will bring us to the actual first match, which is again Yamcha versus Tian Shinhan. Uh, the match starts and he gets the best background music ever. There's just like a little musical interlude that's played over a lot of action, which is kind. I think it's kind of like the first time they've done something like this in the show. Mm, they've done some musical interludes before. Yeah, but it's usually like with with the gang like traveling or something, right? Yeah, that's true. Uh, the fight itself, though, is is pretty well done. We're starting to get a style that is much more similar to the Z style that everyone's familiar with. And will, you know, become essentially the, the style of fighting that defines the series overall. We also get an early look at the Dragon Ball trope of ending the episode before the fight is over because it's it stops like halfway through. Which brings us to episode 88 called Yamcha's Bring Big Break. Uh, finally, in an episode where Yamcha's clearly going to come out on top. That's really the only way you can interpret this title, right? I'm not I'm not wrong. Anyways, uh, Yamcha pops off this episode with the use of the Wolf Fang Fist, but it would appear our fighters are evenly matched. The art and flow of the combat continues to evolve in this episode, adopting more of that angular style that will become genre-defining. Techniques are traded back and forth at this point as opposed to just like trying to punch each other between the two of them, uh, but it's becoming increasingly obvious that Yamcha is no match for Tien. Continues pushing on anyway, though, uh, pulling out a surprise trump card, the Kamehameha Wave, which apparently nobody knew that he knew how to do. It doesn't really work out for him because Tien just sort of bounces it back at him by yelling at it. This ultimately only serves to distract Yamcha from the follow-up that knocks him unconscious, and then the follow-up to the follow-up where Tien snaps Yamcha's femur. Oh, wait, that's where the joke in the title was coming from. <laughs> I, I see it now. Okay. Well, fortunately, Tien has incorrectly surmised that Yamcha was Master Roshi's best student. He's going to be in for a rude awakening in the, the coming matches. I, I'm not really sure. I don't. I didn't notice if it was explained or not. I'm assuming Yamcha's entry causes a delay for the rest of the matches because that's that's the end of the matches for the day, and they won't start again till like noon the next day. Yeah, it's never stated. It's yeah, it's not like outright stated. Even though they they immediately go to like doing match after match after match the next day, so I'm not really sure what happens there. But anyways, so yeah, the rest of the matches are are done for the day. So everyone decides to accompany Yamcha to the hospital. Uh, where it would seem medicine is either a joke or some sort of super science, as Yamcha's lower leg is put in a cast despite, and yes, I went back and checked this in the video, uh, Tien landing on his femur and snapping his femur. The gang goes out for dinner to let Yamcha rest, but they run into the cranes at the restaurant, and the cranes continue to flex on the turtles, but really everyone's a loser here. The next morning kicks off with tournament staff getting everything ready, and Man Wolf still seriously pissed at Jackie Chun. What could possibly fuel this vitriol for the old man? We don't find out till next episode, which is episode 89, titled Full Moon Vengeance. Now, see, with this one, after the last episode, I thought maybe there was going to be like a mooning incident of Man-Wolf, but I, <laughs> I, I, I was wrong again. I'm just going to be upfront about that one. Anyways, uh, so the focus of this episode is Jackie Chun versus Man-Wolf. Let's, let's get this going. Yamcha has been finally cleaned off the stage. Our fighters prepare in the green room for their matches. Manwolf has an axe to grind, and he's very impatient. And then our fighters enter the ring, and we start getting the backstory to why Manwolf is so pissed, while Jackie just sort of, like, plays with him while he's in the ring. Does It seems more like he's sort of just trying to tease the information out of him as opposed to, like, actually fighting him. Uh, we get a flashback to Jackie's fight against Goku three years ago, where Jackie blew up the moon, uh, thus locking Manwolf into his wolf form forever. Uh, that actually seems somewhat reasonable, considering some of the villainous motivations we've seen so far in this show. <laughs> All the anger is for naught, however, as Jackie merely toys with Manwolf, ultimately winning a ring out by playing fetch with him. But Jackie Chun's a good sport and offers to help Manwolf with his performance issues. He hypnotizes Manwolf into thinking Krillin's head is his bald head is the full moon, which somehow reverts him to his human form permanently. I'm, I'm not going to ask specifics. It's Dragon Ball. Problem solved. The fur, at least, probably not the women. That kicks off match number three, Chaozu versus Krillin, which starts in earnest in episode 90, titled The Dodon Wave. Uh, our lead in this episode is a scene with the cheerleading squad. That's everyone not fighting in the tournament. Discovering that a competitor was severely burned in his preliminary match. I mean, a case of obvious foreshadowing here. 
Uh, the match itself starts slowly but quickly picks up pace. Krillin's biggest challenge is being able to attack a foe who can fly. And not even just like fly, but sort of like hover off of the ring by like an inch or two and just sort of like slides around without moving, which is very <laughs> unnerving to watch. But it would seem Chiaotzu is planning to just float out of reach and attack with energy beams, which is called the Dodon Wave, and just sort of like using range to his advantage, basically, which is a tough break for Krillin. Uh, the technique, as I said, was called the, the Dodonpa in Japanese, or the Dodon Wave, if you're, if you're uh, you know, getting your uh, dub on. And it jogs Goku's memory of a certain hitman that he fought at Korin's Tower. Tien overhears Goku's claim and calls him out for lying. Turns out Tao Pai Pai is the Crane Hermit's younger brother. I guess that explains the attitude problem. Back in the ring, Krillin still hasn't improved his situation. He tries some Sonic the Hedgehog-inspired, or I guess Sonic's moves would be Krillin-inspired? Defensive maneuvers and even tries to take advantage of Chiaotzu's muddy understanding of left and right to confuse him. But nothing seems to be working. Krillin decides to go all in on a Kamehameha wave, which is a technique that he hadn't even really tried before this match. He does like a test one and it like barely goes off. And he's like, yeah, I guess that's good enough. And decides to go full bore and fire one off at Chiaotzu. <laughs> Will it work? Who knows? We'll have to find out next episode because they are continuing the trend of stopping the episode mid fight. Yeah. That's what gets you to watch it the next week. That's true. They got to, they got to build in their audience for the next episode. Yeah. So I do want to mention very briefly because I don't know if I if I have notes on this, and I, I don't want to forget it. So if you're out there listening to us, and you're going to be like, well, how could you possibly forget this? little peek behind the curtain. We're going to record this episode, and then we're going to record a few episodes, and then we're going to like circle back to this tournament. It'll probably be a solid six weeks between when we record this episode and when we record our next episode about this tournament. And so I don't want to forget in the meantime. The guy wearing the bandages that everyone freaks out about. It's like a filler thing that's in the anime. But I think it's based on something that happens that's in the background of the manga. And I haven't double-checked the manga to double-check this yet. But we're going to talk in our episode, not this one, like coming up soon, about something called Jiangxi. Which for the purposes of this episode, are essentially Japanese zombies. They are sometimes depicted as being bandaged, and I think there's some Zhangxi that are in the background of one of the panels of the tournament. And so the anime staff then maybe isn't aware that they're supposed to be Zhangxi and makes a whole thing about it being like some guy that Chaozu has burned before. <laughs> that's like my working theory. I, I can see that. I, I'm hoping taking... that, that's, that that seems like a better explanation than, oh no, this kid just likes to light people on fire for martial arts <laughs> matches. I mean, that definitely is filler. So I think what they did is they like took some background characters from the manga that were like in bandages and they were like, oh, what if we like explained that you know because that'll give us a that'll give us a couple minutes <laughs> <laughs> that'll 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 cheapen the animation budget all we gotta do is have a guy sitting at a table he doesn't even have to move <laughs> so these these quarterfinals begin with yamcha telling tien hey i'll show you the light and remember the theme of this tournament is light versus dark shadow versus sun it's going to focus on vision and sight and people truly seeing things so that's more of that theme coming home some notes on tien's techniques that he uses against yamcha at least he fights in crane style cuz duh <laughs> the, to be fair though it would be funny if the crane students didn't fight in crane style that's true. It could be. That, yeah. that would be a Toriyama thing to do, right? He also holds a Lohan Kwan pose, which is held by those who have achieved the level of Lohan, which sits one level below Bodhisattva and two below Buddha. So we're told just from his fighting stance that Tien is well-cultivated, well-trained, knows his stuff. Tien uses an Uttara Bodhi Mudra, or 
Mark of Supreme Enlightenment, which unifies body and mind and perfection and is associated with the great son Buddha. And that's just like how he holds his hands. Just quick notes. We have a whole lot more about Tien. Trust me. He's, he's gonna, dude's going to get his whole own episode, basically. Jackie Chun versus Manwolf. Now, in order to immobilize him, he attacks him, and it's on the point of his body associated with the third eye, which we've seen Tien. He has one of those. And that third eye is associated with being able to see past illusion and see into other dimensions. This freezing of his opponent that Chun is doing, it's the same technique deployed by General Blue, but it's applied here via acupressure rather than Blue just being able to do it by staring at you. But it's the same sort of thing. It's a hypnotism thing. And because Chun is attacking Manwolf or tapping him where that third eye is, where you can see past illusions and see into other dimensions, that's like how he's able to hypnotize him. And then the question then obviously becomes, is Jackie Chun the world's greatest hypnotherapist? Definitely, like every time he unloads a new technique, it adds a lot of depth to this character because you start to wonder, wait, how many different things has this man learned over his three hundred years? Yeah, yeah, I like I. That is probably my favorite thing about Jackie Chun is every everything Jackie Chun does makes you respect Roshi a lot more for never showboating that stuff in front of people sure and speaking of techniques here's one that the old man doesn't have which is flight tian and shao tzu we've we've learned through watching these episodes can fly by using a martial arts technique and we've seen characters flying dragon ball before but it's always either via like gags or an external source or some kind of vehicle but tian and shao tzu use a technique called bukujutsu or basically cloud dancing technique the boo is dance but it's the same boo as in budokai which has martial arts connotations as opposed to straight actual dancing. The coup is the same coup as in Goku, which means emptiness. So there's a further connotation that it's used by those who have a Buddha-like awareness of emptiness. At this point in the story, there's no in-universe explanation for how they do this. Way later on, like late Z, we'll learn it's a technique where one focuses their key downward such that it propels them off the ground. But still, how is this happening? Well. In the Han Dynasty, so something like 2,000 years ago roughly, uh, before Taoist culture became established and more formalized, Jianren were called Yuren, which means feathered men. In artwork, these men are depicted with wings and holding lingji, a psychotropic mushroom that induces a feeling of flying and makes you feel immortal. Lingji are thought to, be, are thought to enable people to enter the spiritual realm between life and death, and Taoist hermits seek them out as part of their personal cultivation. Thus, the mushrooms feed into the notion that hermits who are well-cultivated can fly. Because language is fun, we can delve deeper into it. The Jian used in Jian Ren or, or mountain men comes from a word that is also pronounced Jian but uses a different Hanzi character, which means to soar like a bird. So before the language becomes more formalized, some of these mountain men, Jian Ren, are actually men who soar like birds. Culturally, Taoist monks come to be seen as men who are so detached from the world and have been lightened. Uh, without the weight of earthly responsibility holding them down so they can fly rather than it simply being a feeling induced by drugs. And these Lingji mushrooms, though, also contribute to the study of alchemy and studying various mixtures and techniques to combine things in crucibles in order to find an elixir for eternal life. And we talked about that a little bit on our previous episode with your Don and your Don Chan and your Don Tan and your whatever. <laughs> Basically, these guys are just tripping out in the woods and having a good old time. <laughs> so, yeah, if you've been paying close attention to us talking about all these crucibles, you'll see how this gets internalized. Senin believe in internal crucibles where they can cultivate themselves and actually literally alter the essence of their bodies by performing specific meditations. So we go from a psychotropic item to an alchemical potion, to an internal ability. The cultivation that allows a senin to fly opens up their zhuchan, 
or heavenly circuit, which is the font from which their key flows. So they're opening up a channel between them and where their key is flowing from. And by refining this circuit and learning to control your key, Taoists believe they can become physically lighter, as well as mentally, and increase their energy capacity greatly, thus allowing them to fly. Now, the notion of men being able to fly becomes kind of an important part of Taoist belief, but when depicted in traditional Chinese art, in order to show that the men are in fact flying and not simply placed into the image awkwardly by the artist, because remember this, we're talking about this art, this is art from the the O's. And when I say Before O's, years had four numbers. <laughs> yes. I was gonna say when I say O's, I mean I mean yes. Single and double-digit years. <laughs> so there, it's it's pretty crude and early art. To make sure that people know this guy's flying and not just like in the middle of the image or supposed to be important, they're shown riding something. The intent is to show they've achieved mastery over their base condition and they've trans- transcended beyond human limits. And can you guess what the two most common symbols Senin are seen riding on in this art? Uh, Boeing 737. <laughs> well, if you didn't guess clouds and cranes, then you failed today's pop quiz. Oh. The cranes uh, that are used, specifically depicted, most are red-crowned cranes. So, again, there we have a further connection to this red-crowned crane and our crane hermit and our crane school students so why don't tian and chaozu fly on a crane then because goku flies on a cloud the only real difference here is that goku is very very specifically based on sun wukong who flies using a cloud and tian is a mixture of many different inspiration points from toriyama's favorite movies and stories and some journey to the west as well so Instead of putting him on top of a crane and and rooting him more strongly to a specific and singular Journey to the West character, Toriyama just lets him fly. He's doing more of a melting pot kind of thing. Let's be real. He probably was like, that'd be too much work to draw a crane. That quite possibly as well. Over thousands of years, as the art itself becomes more refined and Taoism itself evolves, the emphasis on external means of flight becomes lessened and the internal is the greater focus. The connection to flight via birds or clouds or turtles or what have you becomes more of a supernormal ability of flight and general lightness. This influences all storytelling and we ultimately get the high-flying wire work of kung fu movies of Hong Kong that are beloved by guess who... Akira Toriyama. Speaking of which, I did actually watch, uh, we mentioned in the Goku and the Demon Realm, I think it was called, episode. Mm -hmm. The movie Zoo, Warriors of the Magic Mountain. Yes. Awesome. Oh, you actually had a chance to watch it? Yes. Super, super duper fun. It's on Internet Archive. It's like 96 minutes long, and around the 36-minute mark, you feel like it's the climax of the movie, and every scene after that feels like the climax of a movie. <laughs> so it's just endlessly ratcheting up? Yes, it's, it's, just, it's just endless insanity. It's awesome. I loved that it. That sounds amazing. I'm going to watch that. It's also like very funny, too. There's a lot of really good gags uh, with... like. Early in the movie, it starts like in the middle of the Chinese, some Chinese civil war. And so there's a red army, a blue army, and they're fighting each other. And as these two guys are fighting each other, they're like the only two survivors or something. They get like separated from their army. A gold and a green army also fight each other. And they're like, oh, crap. Like these two guys then who were enemies, like, oh, crap, what do we do? Let's pretend we're dead. (laughs) And like, there's a whole bunch of good slapstick with them trying to avoid being killed by these two armies because they are also enemies of of all of them, but then also at the same time, like, not trusting each other and, and, like, trying to pull one over on each other. A lot of really good good. stuff there. And that's just the comedy in the early parts of the movie. And then it gets into the insane action in the back half, and that is 
just awesome wire work, wire work, wire foo, great stuff. Sounds good. I'll definitely add that to my watch list now. So, Toriyama picks cranes because of a long-standing cultural connection between turtles and cranes, but also because he loves contrast. He then makes the crane students capable of flight to further hammer home that contrast uh, against the earthbound turtles. And one of the absolute most iconic parts of Dragon Ball, the ability of characters to fly, is introduced. Now, we can hear what you're saying, and what you and the entire world are saying is, but Poir, Poir can fly, you lying sacks of waste. How dare you forget about Poir? <laughs> Flying has been around in Dragon Ball since day one, and to you we say, shut up and slag off. But also, that Poir's flight differs from Bukujutsu, and that it's an innate ability on his part. Poir can fly because he's not human. Even more explicitly, he can fly because he's so entangled with shape-shifting and yokai and the spirit realm that it's just something he can do without it being an ability he needs to have learned. Fun fact, since we're talking about cultural flight abilities among religious outliers, in Western culture, flight is seen as an ability of witches, but they fly via broomsticks. Why is that? Because of awesome reasons, basically. Let's ruin witches' brooms the way we ruin Tanuki. (laughs) (laughs) Traditionally... Real witches believe they could induce flight in a similar manner to Taoist practitioners. In other words, alchemy and potion making. Witches, however, believe that ingestion was not the best method for introducing these potions and chemicals into their bodies. They instead sought direct absorption into the bloodstream via vaginal insertion. They'd coat dildos with their flight chemicals and insert them, which would allow them to fly. I don't know why, but for some reason in my head just now, I was thinking of like a witch putting a stick of dynamite up there and taking off like a rocket. (laughs) So over the decades and centuries, as witches became sort of boogeymen to Puritans, and these Puritans would rather speak ill of Jesus than depict anything as graphic as a witch jamming a dildo into herself in order to fly, the image became sanitized and turned into a broom that she rode on rather than inserted into herself. So the next time you're playing Quidditch or thinking about Harry Potter flying around in this Nimbus 2000, remember, it should be a dildo. Yeah, the Nimbus 2000 should be like the Nim... A a Nimrod, if you will. Oh, a Nimrod 2000? That's more sanitary (laughs) for our our PG show that I try to do. Totally PG in every way. (laughs) I edit so much stuff out of this show to make sure we don't swear. But occupational hazard. Yes, that's uh, there. You go. Tanuki are scrote machines, and witches fly on dildos. Is it is it weird that I am enjoying ruining things for people? <laughs> so flight, flight is like this is this is where it starts in Dragon Ball, and I actually have some cool things that I discovered about flight in Dragon Ball Z, but I'm gonna save them, I think, for when we get into Dragon Ball Z. But okay. flight in Dragon Ball, how do you compare it to flight in anything else? Is it cooler to you than flight that Superman does or that Peter Pan does? Or who are some other like notable flying characters? I think it's way cooler than like anything Iron Man does because that's not you flying. Yeah, no, that's the suit flying, definitely. I don't know. I've never really thought about flight too much as like an ability for fictional characters. I'm not even really sure. Like, what's the difference between like what the crane students are doing and like how Superman's flight was? Like, do you have do you know the mechanics of how Superman's flight works? That's been a hot topic of debate for a long time. <laughs> the <laughs> the question is with Superman. Is it an extension of his ability to leap buildings in a single bound? Is it an extension of his strength and his strength only? Or is it some other ability that he has? Uh, yeah, his, his horse is so high that he just floats over <laughs> everybody. At least that's like, probably how Lex Luthor would explain it, right? It's not – It's I guess it's like it's like – it's like one of those – you would have these kind of arguments with your friends at, like, lunch where – Yeah, absolutely. You'd, you'd argue about, like, who would win in a fight and why and things like that. And you'd argue, you know, can Superman fly because Superman can fly or can Superman fly because he's very, very strong? 
So I'm guessing it's it's like a I don't know the is answer. He, is he actually flying or is he like I, Hulk jumping type thing? But he definitely like, can, like Superman can float. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking too. So it's got to be like an ability that he has, right? So if Superman could fly because it's an ability that he has rather than an extension purely of his strength, then he has quite a bit of control over it, which means it's at least similar to the flight in Dragon Ball. Okay. Because flight in Dragon Ball, you have quite a bit of control over how fast you're flying, your directions, you can float, you can, I don't know, stand on the clouds like it's it's and they it's, can sort of they can sort of float in like any orientation that they want too if i remember correctly yeah because i'm thinking about like when they're fighting and they have to like stop themselves or something like that in midair which that's well, that's another interesting kind of spin on it too because when you think about like someone throwing a punch like they have to be anchored on the ground for that punch to really actually get anywhere are they like punching and then also having to like expel key in the opposite direction to like give them the amount of force that they need to actually hit somebody if we want to get into this then yes i think you have to right because that's Uh, i'm trying not to but i'm just it's it's i don't know it it begs the question you watch the boys right yeah the episode with the plane crash and Maeve is like, can't you go outside and like stop the plane from crashing? And he's like, well, it's like no, it would crush the plane. Well, he he says, stop it against what? There's nothing for me to push against. Yeah. But hmm. Dragon Ball would have us believe that you could push against the air kind of because it's your key. Well, it wouldn't it wouldn't necessarily be the air that you're pushing against. It would be I was thinking more like thrust of the key. Now, culturally, it's because this comes from a technique where you're walking amongst the clouds, and this comes, like, from... Oh, so you're literally so light that you can push off the air. Yeah, and you are and, and you oh, would okay. be pushing off of the clouds, because clouds are, generally speaking, like, more dense than air, kind of, right? Gotcha. Especially, okay. especially you know... We're talking 2,000 years ago, you'd look up in the sky and see a cloud, and people would, like, think you could walk on it, you know, in ge- <laughs> in general. That's true. Mario didn't help that. <laughs> but so that's where, culturally, it's, it's like, you're, you're walking on the clouds, like, uh, we've mentioned him, and we're going to mention him again, but Prince okay. Neja and his ability to fly on his little fire wheels. Right, right, right. So I guess, in a way, what you're describing is more like Peter Pan, then. Maybe, because... Because it's it's kind of similar, like it's an internal feeling that you have to develop, and then the extension of that is that you can float and fly around. The difference being, don't you have to get whacked by Tinkerbell's butt in order to be able to use your happy thoughts to fly? That is true, yes. So there is definitely like an outside source that facilitates it, but it's still only half the equation, right? Correct. So I guess in a way, you could look at learning the technique as being whacked by Tinkerbell's butt. (laughs) And then, you know, training yourself is is learning to fly. Hmm. Maybe. Here's here's my wild take. Spider-Man swings on webs... Because it's the only thing that makes sense for him to quote fly, end quote. Like it's a, it's a stand-in for giving the, the the character flight abilities. I'll go with that, right? A, a spider couldn't fly, right? So how to make a Spider-Man fly? Make but him... if we can't if we can't make him fly, and if all he can do is jump from building to buildings, take forever for him to get places. So what do we do? Make him swing. No, we give him a buggy that can drive up walls. <laughs> or a giant Voltron robot. Or, yes, exactly. Leopardon, yes. <laughs> no, it's... Well, because this gets into that question. This is like a... This this gets into a little bit of that who would win in a fight, Goku or Superman argument with people who say Goku not... Like, the most compelling argument I've heard for Goku, right, Mm -hmm. 
because I've heard like the the feats of strength argument a lot, and I'm always like, Superman has been shown like pulling entire planets. Yeah, get out of here with Goku. <laughs> but the most compelling argument I've heard is that key and the ability to manipulate it, and thus Goku's flight, is more akin to magic than uh, anything yes. else. Big Blue is vulnerable to magic. And yes, Spider-Man could be hurt by magic. Which, <laughs> fun fact about that, the first time I I told that to like someone, I, it was I think it was my sister, it's like someone very casual who does not pay attention to comics. Right. She was like, oh, Superman's hurt by magic, huh? So if I'm going to fight with Superman, I just have to be like, is this your card? <laughs> That's actually pretty good. I like that. <laughs> I was like, not and like then, that. And then did, you, did, you, did you tell her about what's his name? Uh, Mitzelplick or whatever? Mr. Mixelpitic? <laughs> Who basically does that every time he shows up. <laughs> so yeah, it's is is the ability to flight... Is the is the ability to flight? Is the ability of flight a m- magical ability? And that's is the ability to control your key magical? I would say there's it, it, uh, that seems like a good argument for me. There's definitely a quality of like mysticism around everything, sort of martial arts flavored, in this show at least so far. Yeah, and the like the biggest argument for that is like all these crazy ass techniques that Roshi has. That don't get pulled out till the tournament, and we we do establish that it is not purely based on how strong you are. Because that is true, Goku is definitely stronger than Chaozu at this point. He can't fly. Roshi also, he also can't fly. Later on, when we get into Z, Goten can go Super Saiyan. And but he can't fly. Is stronger. Yeah, he's stronger than anyone in Dragon Ball. Period. But he can't fly. So it, flight is not purely an extension of strength. But at the same time, when they're teaching Videl how to fly, she well, I guess it's more more she has to learn how to cultivate her energy because she's so inexperienced with it that she has trouble even gathering enough energy to to levitate herself. Yeah, she has not yet learned how to control her key. So I, I guess, I guess, I guess she would be right. It wouldn't necessarily be an extension of physical strength. It would be more an extension of how well cultivated you are, which culturally sounds uh, consistent, honestly. And then that's also why Mister Satan can't fly, and why Videl even comments that she doesn't believe he'll ever be able to learn how to fly. <laughs> that. I, yeah, okay, I could see that now. That makes sense. And I don't it's know. It's actually what... a lot more internally consistent now than it was before we recorded this, at least in my mind. I, I don't uh, know at what point I started loving Mr. Satan, but like, I love Mr. Satan. <laughs> I think it was right around the point where the crowds were chanting, like, Hail Satan. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think it. It really might have been super and that he like just takes a complete back seat and now he is just like a complete gag character. Or maybe even like towards the end of the boo stuff when like his arc comes to its fulfillment as being oddly parallel to that of Smeagol or Gollum in Lord of the Rings. <laughs> Where <laughs> He's not super useful, and he's, in fact, maybe even a little bit dangerous to keep around in case of a fight. Because he's not going to help you. Right. And he's only going to look out for himself. But by taking pity on this person and by bringing them along, you save everything. True. Now, it's only a minor parallel because obviously... Gollum uh, bites off Frodo's finger is such avarice for the ring that he falls into the into the fires of Mount Doom which by the way that got spoiled for me 
in a class one time talking about ethics and talking about pity when the first two movies had come out and the third movie was coming out in like four months and I hadn't read the books yet. Uh, can we really call that spoiling? Yes, I didn't. I had no idea. <laughs> like, I obviously knew they were going to win and whatever because that's how these things go. But I didn't know it was going to be like all clever and stuff. I get you. I get you. But anyways, that happens to, to Gollum. And then obviously Mr. Satan just like he doesn't get like a hole punched through his face or something. <laughs> I think I think Mr. Satan's story is a little bit more redemptive than, than Gollum's is. Yes. <laughs> Mr. Satan, at least, especially with the end of the, the Cell Saga, how he was willing to put himself in danger to help Android 16 reach out to Gohan in the middle of that fight mm-hmm. also ultimately saved everything. So I think they, they, they were probably kind of riffing on that. Well, we know he's useless and he doesn't really do much of anything, but he's got amazing timing. He's a, he's a cowardly braggart and a jerk, but he's deep, deep down, deep, deep down, way deep down there. He's a good guy. <laughs> <laughs> I we keep emphasizing how deep down that is. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, so yeah, it's wild to to think like we are this far into Dragon Ball, which is this is pretty far. We're more than halfway. Yeah, before flight gets introduced, and definitely a, a slower pace in the the power creep department at this part portion of the show. Well, yeah, gets a little uh, out of hand later. <laughs> another we didn't we didn't talk about this at the at the top, but another good fun batch of episodes this tournament is is good stuff i i like the couple of gaggy like i'm i like the couple of gaggy fights before you get into like the serious ones because he understands i think that you can't just have tension 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 you have to have breaks in it right to keep people interested in the story yeah and 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 you have this very tense fight with tien and yamcha and then we get the Wolfman fight, which is completely just a joke. Like, the entire thing is just a joke. Yeah. And then we get back to ramping up the tension again with Krillin and Chiaotzu. Yes. And this is this is a really good fight to start building that tension back up again because we don't have enough frame of reference for Chiaotzu. And we haven't really seen any of the training that Krillin has done. So from the viewer's perspective, like, this, this is definitely a toss-up. Like, we all kind of knew... Yamcha was going to be a jobber for Tien. Like, it, that seems fairly obvious from the jump. But with this fight, it's this is one of those ones where it's like, well, neither character's important enough necessarily to the story for them to have to stick around. So this one really could go either way. This this is one of the two remaining fights in this entire tournament where I think the winner is not immediately obvious. And the yeah. other is the final. Yeah, the final, the final to me, and we're not. I'm not going to spoil it, but the outcome of that to me seemed like even Toriyama wasn't really sure who he wanted to win until the last second. That's that is the so this is he again insists that he's like oh, I just make everything up as I go along and I never have who's going to win and who's going to lose. You got you got to call BS a little bit. Yeah, because obviously. now while I could believe that he could ha- that he maybe could have. Like, maybe had Krillin or Yamcha or even Jackie Chun get knocked out in the preliminaries. I don't think he was ever going to have Chaozu, Tian, or Goku get knocked out in the preliminaries. And then when he sets up these quarterfinals matches the way he does, you're like, well, obviously, we need to get Tian versus Goku at some point. Mm -hmm. So we're building to that. So Tien has to beat Yamcha, and you're not going to have Jackie Chun lose to Wolfman, Man Wolf. I'm sorry, I don't want to. That's right. That's we've been we've been butchering that pretty badly. He gets he gets super offended when you call him Wolfman too. It does. (laughs) And then you're not going to have Goku lose to his name is Penput. Yeah, there's there's no way that's happening. (laughs) 
you know. So and then and then when you get to the to the oh, semifinals, oh, hero of the manga versus some guy that we were just introduced earlier this episode. Yeah, no, he's definitely not going to win. And then when you get to the semifinals, I think it's super obvious who's going to win the two semifinals matches. Yeah, but yeah, it's. So he's he still says he's like, oh, I just make it up as I go along and I never know who's going to win until I write it. But I'm like, come on, you started writing the Manwolf versus Jackie Chun fight and didn't know who was going to win, please. Yeah, I, I, I would believe him to a point, at least as far as like the outcome of the final. I think it's possible that he obviously has structured things so that he gets the fights that he wants narratively, but. It's also possible that he's like, well, I'm going to have them fight, but I'm still not sure which one I want to have win yet. Like, or, that seems well within the, the realm of possibility. Or, you know, oh, well, obviously Jackie Chun's not going to lose to Man Wolf, but how do I have that happen? Yeah. Exactly. It's not a bad gag either to have this guy like talking about how women like wanted him real bad and then he gets turned back into a dude and he's pretty fugly. Yeah, that's pretty unfortunate for him. But I also like that it sort of plays to Roshi's strength as a character because you're able to be a badass and be a complete joke at the same time with him. Mm -hmm. And so having a gag fight where, yeah, it's funny, but he's also showing off some pretty high-level techniques and skills and things like that makes for at least an interesting viewing experience or reading experience. Yeah. Yeah, and then and back to the back to the flight thing. I think it's pretty telling. I don't think like would I want to be able to fly? I guess, but also there's really not that many situations in this world where it would come in super duper handy because right. you know, birds, bugs, birds, bugs. That's exactly what I was thinking. <laughs> plane, you know, you start getting higher planes. It's like it's almost like I would want to be able to fly so that I could like maybe commute like and it depends how physically exhaustive flying is. Right. But being able to get to work when traffic is really bad by not sitting in traffic, that would be cool. I mean not and, and to take it even further, like you don't even have to follow the roads. You could just fly in a straight line. That alone would probably save you a ton of time. Exactly. So, you know, you you pop open your GPS because you got to go somewhere and you're like, oh, my God, traffic is terrible. And it's it's supposed to take me 45 minutes to make this 20 minute drive. Yeah, let me just fly. Yeah. Yeah, I could see that. Which is what makes the the driving test episode even better. <laughs> <laughs> I don't I don't know if I guess maybe I would consider it. I would probably. As as prep, I would be wearing like like a Tyvek coverall and like a face mask for the bugs. Definitely the birds, a face mask, as we discuss, because I don't want to show up somewhere and just be plastered in like bug guts. Like that would just be disgusting. Yeah, I mean, think about any time you've ever driven on like a country road. Yeah, and how splattered your windshield in the front of your car gets, and then apply that to almost anywhere you would go because you would not be flying on the roads. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. I just, I don't know. It doesn't seem like a great trade for me. No, I, I think, you know, we're talking about your your wishes and your ability to wish for things. I'm still sticking with my time manipulation. I don't fly. You can, you I, can I'm okay flight. with hammer space pockets. That's <laughs> I'm good with that. But, no, flight and Dragon Ball is awesome. And it it adds a cool way to do some expository dialogue and some exposition scenes while having it still feel dynamic. True. And I, I also it probably makes it a lot easier for Toriyama to draw his art because now he doesn't have to worry about where they're placed in the background. <laughs> it doesn't matter. They're flying. <laughs> but I, I do appreciate any time. Like I, what was I, I was watching something fairly recently and they were doing like a, a dialogue an exposition dump but they were doing it like i don't know the characters were doing something and i was like oh this makes this a lot more palatable than when they're just sitting around explaining things to each other all righty <laughs> do you think you could tell us about 
why they call you the bikini now? Are you sure you won't just cut me off to do another podcast episode? When have I ever? Seriously? Like, less than an hour ago. It seems like the kind of thing I'd remember. With how little regard you pay me, I'm often surprised when you remember who I am. Despite my best efforts, I will probably never be able to forget you, Bikini. Really? Oh my, no. I'm sure once you get actually killed, instead of just really scared or badly injured like you always are, I'll forget about you as just as I have my other co-hosts. What's his name? And who's it's? And, and that guy. You used to co-host with who's it's? What are you, dumb? I was just giving a generic example. But who's it's is that famous musician. I know. I was deliberately using an example from real life. But you just said it was a generic example. What is this, an Abbott and Costello routine? A what? Oh, no. I already refused to get into Tupperware. And God. We're not getting into Abbott and Costello either. Fine. Then I'll just explain why they call me the Bikini. No time for that. Wait, seriously? Oh, I knew you'd interrupt me. Interrupt nothing. Look out the starboard bay window. I don't see anything. And the port side? A field of stars. What's your point? Don't you remember the last time we couldn't see the stars outside our windows? Oh, no. Another amoeba cloud? Right. Now, hang on. I'm going to have to do some fancy maneuvering. So fancy, in fact, that I need you to do me a favor. Oh, God. Here it comes. I need you to head outside, right next to the propulsion engines, and push them in whatever direction I tell you. You're faster than the mechanism in the engines, and it'll help us move with pinpoint accuracy. <laughs> yep, I knew it. Hey, when the next me comes back, can you just please not downplay the trauma he'll have retroactively experienced? Get moving before we're enveloped in a cloud of killer amoeba. Yeah, yeah, I'm going. Listeners, we'll take our leave of you here. Will we outrace the cloud of death threatening to envelop us and eat through our ship? Will we be able to maintain our course and continue recruiting for Lord Frieza? Find out next time and help us achieve our final forum. Final Form is written and produced by Tom Gwelly. It is performed by Dan Kinney and Tom Gwelly. Our webmaster is Dan Kinney. Our theme music is provided by YouTube content creator GVG Kit. Want to learn more about the Dragon Ball universe, including concept art, behind-the-scenes interviews, and recommendations from Jelly and Bikini? Connect with us on social media. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Final Forum Pod. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you receive your podcasts. And of course, make sure to share with your friends and family and help us spread the word of the glory of Lord Frieza. The Frieza Force thanks you for your listenership.